You're making a bigger fool of yourself than I thought you would, Mr. Kane. I've got nothing to talk to you about. You licked. Why don't Get you... Get out if you want to see me have the warden write me a letter. If anybody else I'd say what's going to happen to you, it'd be a lesson to you. Only you're going to need more than one lesson. You're going to get more than one lesson. Don't worry about me, Gettys. Don't worry about me! I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. This is episode 91. We're one-tenth of the way through. Ten percent. We're doing good. We're doing Ten out of a hundred. Yeah. One hundred out of a thousand. <laughs> thousand out of ten thousand. That's the sequel to this series. Yeah. We're Our favorite gonna... thousand movies. No, it's going to be like favorite thousand props. Ooh, in movies. Yeah. Yeah. No, just... Frames. F- favorite thousand frames. Mm-hmm. We have to nail it Which down. Which would be great for a podcast. Yep. It'll be good. We won't even put that on our, on the Instagram. I almost said our Instagram, but <laughs> I realized you probably don't want to be associated with <laughs> That's that. That's okay. Um, so, yeah, we're here. We're doing 91. We are in um, the corner of the Pivotal Film Studios today, just hanging out. We were in the grotto. We were punished. We were told reps in the corner. <laughs> Um, my opinion on Goodfellas and your general anew with Scream has caused the film gods to banish us to the corner. And the film gods have sent to banish us Lawrence Kasdan with a firearm who's just standing yeah, think, in front of I us. Think, I think you're forcing the Lawrence Kasdan reference in there now. Damn it. We gotta let that be natural. Anyways, as we begin any episode, start with a uh, we start by... Drinking. Discussing our number 91s. Right? No. Oh, it's... We have to drink first, Mario. We always have to drink first. We have a problem. We have to solve it with alcohol. Okay. Um, Tom, you brought this beer? Yeah, so this is a bad... <laughs> he definitely brought this beer. Bad Sons. <laughs> beer company that had a uh, dirty... <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely appropriate. Wow. That Derby. That that my laugh there went right up to the red. That's nice. It only usually does that when we open the beers. Mm. Well, um, sorry, so audience. Derby, Connecticut. It is a East Coast Pale Ale. It is uh, made for all day drinking. It's got um, a five point eight percent alcohol. It is it has the finest Connecticut hops in it. Centennial and Cascade. Looking at the cover, as you will see on the Instagram, uh, Instagram.com slash Pivotal Film. Uh, this is a, a a skull with hops on it, so you know it must be good, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hold on a second. Do I, do I get right? Did the sarcasm dripping this... there? All right, let's open this. Yeah. <laughs> no, open it in the air conditioning vent. It's not. It's on your rug. Oh, okay, that's fine. We didn't dink. We just dinked. We're going to pretend we dinked. Dink. What happened? It's all right. Yeah, that's that's mediocre. That is certainly mediocre. And it finishes with lemon. I don't know why it finishes with lemon. It's got a soda taste. Yeah, no, and it does. a soda feel. It kind it's of feels like, like, like the Sprite of 
of pale ales. Yeah, no, but not Sprite. Like the wall. Do you remember Slice? No, you remember how like Walmart or those other kind of grocery stores yeah. sold like the three liter bottles? Mm-hmm. Like back when we were kids, I don't know if they still do that. This is like Costco brand soda. Yeah, but it's like the liters, like yeah. the, the the extra liter. And it's yeah. like, why was there a third liter? And it was always stuff like this or like grape soda. Yeah, it always or like tasted orange soda or root beer. Off yeah, and and sad. This this is this is that. All right, so we're gonna try to work the taste of that beer out of our mouths by talking about some new movies. Um, the first one is the first of uh, Netflix's really impressive fall slate of releases. Um, yeah, by Netflix is making directors a big Oscar push this year. They have the Coen Brothers movie. Well, have, if, um, if it's not an Oscar push, it's a legitimacy push. Yeah, they exactly. want to be taken seriously as a, as a as a movie studio. Um, so the first one they're releasing is Nicole Hoff Center's new film, The Land of Steady Habits. It's her first film in five years um, since Enough Said. Um, it stars Ben Mendelsohn and Edie Falco as middle-aged people that are going through um, a very middle-aged, upper, upper-class white person series of problems. Anders has divorced his wife for no apparent reason, just because he felt like it. Um, he... Uh, you know, got his own condo. And he's sleeping around, although he's not very successfully. He's got a son who, uh, played by Thomas Mann, who has a, a, a history of drug problems and gambling. Um, and he's just decided to blow up his life. And the movie kind of tracks the ramifications of that on himself and everybody else around him. Those ramifications, however, are, are zero. zero. Yeah. There's, there's no re- well. There's ramifications for the kid that he helps kill. Oh yeah. There's there's ramifications for Charlie who dies. But there's no. But nobody. There's not even for Charlie's parents or for Anders who's very complicit in that sort of death. No ramifications for them. They no. they uh, move on quite quite. Well, quickly. he gets you know he gets the cigar put down on his head. But a couple scenes later, he's happily bagging groceries while an Indian lady kind of gives him a funny look because of the dot like square in the middle of his head. <laughs> and then he has a nice huggy scene with his. Son, and then he has a nice dinner with his new girlfriend, played inexplicably by Connie Britton, who couldn't find anything better to do than be in this. Um, it is her. You can you'll say worst. I'll say least good. I will because I think say worst. I'm glad. I'm still glad that somebody is making these kinds of movies, and she's been good before. But it's her. It's her least effective movie by by a long shot. You know. Yeah, and see, for me, the thing that, beyond the fact that it's very middling, it's slow, the performances I don't think are too impressive. A lot, it just got well-reviewed, and a lot of people are, you know, claiming I think they're just that happy Ben Hudson did, did a good no, job. he was actually terrible. I don't think he's terrible, I just think he's dull. Um, Owen Gleiberman said in his Variety review, though, that it's a story of a man overcoming white people problems entirely of his own destiny. And that's, to me, very true. These are very upper-middle-class white people you know, that land steady habits represents that kind of Fairfield County, Connecticut sort of oh, mindset. I know. It's such like a, it actually is kind of a bummer to hang out with these people because they're oh, just like, yeah. oh, come on, man. No, exactly. When they start talking about the three-story gap, you know, that just opened up in oh, Westport, yeah. I guess it was where the movie takes place. It's like, oh, we're it's talking like, about a three-story gap here? Come yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. And in the year where you get movies like Support the Girls last week we talked about, yep. Black Klansmen, uh, Sorry to Bother You. Whether you liked any of these movies or Whether not. Whether you liked any of these movies, these are kind of addressing more 
um, pertinent problems in society and kind of addressing them in unique and clever ways. Right. And my major problem with this is it's a problem I don't give a shit about. For one thing, it's it's, it's, it's not, not a real it's not problem. A problem. Yeah. yeah, it's not it's not a problem that's interesting. It's not a problem that's engaging. It's not a problem that's pushing, pressing. Um, and there's nothing unique really being done in it. Be, uh, like like I am might as well be watching a Noah Baumbach movie. No, very. Time. And it, I think you might as well be watching any of her other movies. You know. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with her other work. But. Sure, but like you know, you could watch. Um, you know, friends with money or please give or enough said, and you will, the same things, it's tackling roughly the same issues, but the template that she's using for those movies um, or the conceits or the premises of those movies are just vastly more interesting. They have more interesting actors. They have more interesting characters. This movie's, uh, you know, it's just, it's just not interesting. And I think it thinks it's very interesting. Um, And it's just, it's 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 wrong. It's not very self aware yeah, movie. There's, I, I think the best thing to sum up like my opinion of this is um just the Michael Ordano San Francisco Chronicle review. Um, you know he just says it's near funny nor emotional. Whatever twist or tragedies it musters fall flat, and that's kind of like the one thing I gleaned from it. Um, but just read that review, and that kind of just sums up everything that you could that I think a person should feel about that movie. It's it's a waste of ninety three minutes. Yeah, I suppose the only benefit is that if you already subscribe to Netflix, it's not going to cost you anything. Um, yeah, but, but I mean, you it's going to cost you ninety three minutes. It's going to cost you ninety three minutes of your life. Um, and I think which band back to back new movies from Netflix I've watched. Um, one of them wasn't one of their own movies, but they also released a really popular low budget horror movie this past week called Terrifier. That? Oh, I saw I saw the yeah the preview. For that. Nothing nothing more I love in my horror movies than gross misogyny and transphobia. <laughs> Uh, literally a three-minute scene of a woman topless being hanging, hanging upside down, sawed from her vagina. No good? Half, no, no, of course not. And then he later on wears a woman's, has like a suit. Mm-hmm. And it's played up as like, oh, this person is doing something, you know, transgender. Isn't that scary? Mm. That sounds good. These are two yeah. two big recommendations from Netflix. Yeah, it's actually making me a little afraid of uh, what's going to happen with Hold the Dark. In I'm the I'm kind of I'm I'm with you. I'm this Netflix slate um, did not start great, and I'm wondering no. if it's going to be kind of a Netflix thing. We're not hearing the best things about the Coen Brothers movie, The Ballad, coming out. Um, Roma's getting great reviews, so hopefully they're going to end on a good note. Yeah, but uh, but those this... are also getting theatrical releases. The Land of Steady Habits didn't get a theatrical release. So they're not even... They didn't think- get a Madison Arts Cinema <clears throat> release? Well, they're not even thinking that it's going to be... Uh, they didn't release it because they didn't even... It's, they're not even thinking it's going to be in contention for any Oscars. No. So they just it's let it be a Netflix movie. It's not even Independent Spirit Awards right. or in a movie. But I think we've talked enough about this. I think um, we've talked too much about it, yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't see it. Just Usually I'd say like make your own opinion about it, but just don't fucking waste your time. However, the second movie we want to talk about, um, and this is going to be more of the bulk of our discussion, this definitely, I think, washes out the taste of uh, that bad son's beer. Washes out the taste of a lot of things. If not because of the fact that it was just a good movie, but also the fact that it might make you not be able to taste anything ever. Might be able to make you taste colors. Yeah. Or like iron. (laughs) Just a lot of iron. Um, This is the new horror revenge film uh, by Panos Cosmatos. I might have mispronounced that name. No, I think you got it. You know what? His dad directed Tombstone, and that's good enough for me. It's Mandy. Um, Nicholas Cage plays Red. 
he is married or in a long relationship that's not really kind of clarified to this woman mandy uh-huh. um they live a very quiet life he's a lumberjack uh who you kind of get the idea he's maybe suffering from some sort of ptsd he's definitely get you hints that he's a recovering alcoholic at least um but they're living a very quiet steady life uh as quiet as steady as a cosmodo smoothie can be <laughs> um mandy is seen on the road by jeremiah played by linus roach excellently by oh, linus God. Roach. yeah just fantastic. just fantastic uh who is the leader of a lsd infested sort of cult he takes a liking to her uh kidnaps her in the process of trying to sleep with her she rebuffs him he will say this because it happens within the first hour burns her alive in front of in a sack uh, red yeah yeah exactly more graphically, I should say, than the Friday the 13th remake, which was itself pretty graphic. Mm. Um, and Red takes a, doesn't Hilar- take too kindly to that. Hilarity ensues. For the next hour of the movie. <laughs> um, there's a lot. I mean, there's. I mean, and then this. the whole rest of the movie is him just taking revenge out it's on an the hour people and who did this. 10 minutes of a man taking a crow like. A forged weapon to yeah. various forges monster his, skulls and forges mouths. his own battle axe. Yeah, in a in a battle axe uh, forging scene that is that has drawn out for quite a bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a good battle axe forging scene. Yeah, but uh, I think the first thing to talk about uh, for this, um, we both really enjoyed this movie. I think I liked it a lot. For, I was surprised. For many and different, yeah, very no, excited. I was too. I I saw his first movie in preparation for this Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, did not do anything for me. I, I appreciate his pacing generally. I, I, I respect the fact that the first 45 minutes of Mandy's slow because it's telling the way it's telling the story of like this kind of normal relationship, this very slow, methodical, not methodical, this very slow, kind of coherent relationship, and it, it feels naturalistic. Yeah, it's a good, I mean, and it's, a, it's, um, I but it has the same thing. sense of dread throughout it, just. From the cinematography. It does, but I think it's smart in the sense that you don't know where that impending sense of dread is coming from. They seem to live in a world of impending dread. Oh, exactly. Where So it's the, you know... Well, I think the... The, the, the cult stuff actually doesn't have to be separate. No. It's just, it's kind of where they are. It's a, it's a you know, uh, it almost seems like a kind of nexus of the universe where anything, where anything can happen. And that's... Yeah, the cinematography helps that along a lot. The- yeah, well, it's the um, I, th- I think I think a good thing to build into that sense of pending dread is uh, you know Benjamin Loeb was the cinematographer. And there's a scene early on where Red and Mandy are just on a lake. Mm-hmm. Um, all this film was done like using was digital cameras, mm-hmm. but it, they used a grainy kind of 16 millimeter style look. So it gives you a lot of that echoes of like I spit in your grave and Last House on the Left. And it kind of for people who might have been on the age or kind of like have watched those midnight movies. It kind of gives that sense of something not pretty is going to happen. Um, but so I think that's great. Beyond the Black Rainbow does that for two hours. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, the, there's not much to say about the plot because it's not doesn't really mean much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Beyond the Black Rainbow didn't work for me at all. Mm-hmm. There's an LSD tripping scene that, that's very Godard-esque. That's uh, kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a big thing in his movie is LSD. Yeah. In his in his, you know. Toolboxes, yeah. throws yeah, no, LSD at somebody and see what happens. In his two movies, he's he loves LSD. Let's. I can't wait to see what his Marvel movie is going to be like. Oh yeah. Hope no. Um, he, hopefully, he does a Scarlet Witch TV series. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. That'll be good. Um, 
so that movie didn't work at all, uh, especially the fact that the first hour and 40 minutes, 30 minutes of it are really slow. Then the last 10 minutes become a nonsensical kind of slasher. Um, this, however, I think works on so many levels. And I think the, the biggest thing uh, that, that it's the most approachable to talk about is just Nicolas Cage's performance. Um, yeah, I think so. The average viewer, I'd say. Like, Maybe. You don't think so? I, I do. There's a but I don't think it's a thing that's approachable. Um, I actually think it was, I think it's a really, sm- like a really smart movie. I think it's something that like doesn't it get said a lot about slasher movies is that it's actually really well. Um, I wouldn't say it's so much a slasher. It's a no, it's no, a grindhouse like, revenge sure, but like, film, yeah. or about grindhouse revenge films. Insert do a Mad Lib has, and insert grindhouse has, revenge for slasher. As as the man who, who has ten horror movies on his list, I gotta um, correct Tom on his. <laughs> I think it's terminology. I, I think he was smart to kind of hold back on the Nicolas Cage for a while, so it's really. Um, Andrea Risborough's movie for a long time. She yeah. is the focal point of um, that whole beginning part of the movie. He comes in and out to, you know, to have scenes with her or just to kind of, um, they show him, you know, in a helicopter leaving a logging site, you know, not, you know, shaking his head no to a beer um, against the black sky. Um, you kind of understand what he's about. And I think it, for a long time in the movie, it kind of subverts what we expect a Nicolas Cage performance to be. Oh, I'd even agree with that. And like in the beginning, I'm not even talking about like some of the major scenes, you know, in the mid, like in that second act and third act, but like in that beginning when he's really subdued, he's great in it. But I would agree with you though, that it is, you know, Ridsborough's movie in the sense of even after a character dies within, you know, at minute 50 or so, she's still, even though she's only in it for a little bit after that, that character resonates throughout the entire thing and, so, and just through the art style. Right. And I think one of the things that supports that idea is that the second half of the movie, Nicolas Cage doesn't really have anything. He doesn't say anything. Really? No. He's got a couple of After lines that, like, here Bill or there. Duke sequence. Um, right. When he's. Which I love. <laughs> what are you hunting? Uh, Jesus freaks. Yeah. I didn't know they were in season. Cra- I just love his delivery of that crazy evil. Like it's like yeah, this yeah. moment of clarity he has. Um, but that's where. So one of the things I was. So it seems like he's. It seems like the movie wants to fight, wants him to fight back his Nicolas Cage, his, uh, I don't know what era of Nicolas Cage vampire's kiss is. Sort of craziness. His just, yeah. Right, or his, or his, you know, wicker man crazy, or his yeah. even dog eat dog kind of like intensity. He doesn't have that Paul Schrader dog, movie dog with, um, I don't see that one. With, um, Willem I thinking, Dafoe. I was thinking of Lord of War. So he, Willem Dafoe is the crazy one in that one, but Nicolas Cage is just really, really intense. And he kind of, subverts the intensity for a long time and it's a it's a it's a heavy existential intensity well, so yeah, like when even, he goes to the drug the oh, chemist's house yeah all he says is off camera that's cool and then he st- stares at him for a while and then the guy gives him the information and then he leaves yeah it doesn't like have to do anything so it bummed me out when you know he makes the first kill of the biker guy which we'll talk about and um or the second kill of the biker guy. And he's like, you ripped my shirt. You ripped my shirt. And I was like, oh, that's just Nicolas Cage doing Nicolas Cage things. Don't do that. You were not yeah, doing that for but, the whole movie. And Don't I think the it. thing that's interesting in that is, um, so when Mandy dies, there's still that like quiet intensity. I know you're not, you reset off air. You're not the biggest fan of that scene. You think I just it think lingers too long. I think it's really, really long. And, and I think that's a plot. To me, that's a purposeful intent. And the fact that like, I think it is too, but I just don't think it, I don't think it works. Um, 
for me, it, it drives like that melancholy. And like he has that intensity when he first kills those those bikers. And after that, each kill kind of just comes with this melancholy afterwards. Like there's a slight intensity to it, uh, especially like that chainsaw fight. But after each kill, it's just kind of a melancholy. And I like that. I think I think it's it's nothing of this is cathartic. And not for yeah, not for him. No, yeah, it's it's he thinks at first it's going to be cathartic. I think it is for us. Yeah, no, definitely <laughs> for the audience it is. But for him, for Red, it's it's there's nothing. He's not getting anything out of it. She, the what he wanted is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the thing that cageism, as you would say, works in that first scene is because he thinks it's going to be cathartic. He thinks it's going to maybe give him something. Um, in the bathroom scene, yeah. Well. In the bathroom scene, then that's what I was going to... No, I was going to say in that first scene where he's killing the first bikers. Um, it was that biker oh, LSD. Oh, yeah. Guy. Maybe. Because uh, every kill after that is is reduces, you know? He's not... He doesn't go into that intensity. What are we talking about for reduces? <laughs> we're talking about for reduces. Are we talking about when he well, gets his the chainsaw he fall, sword he falls, But he falls... He's quiet with that. He's not doing too much with his face. It's not until like that very last shot of that smile. Yeah, I would like to believe that is the case, but part of me thinks they just kind of needed to have a Nick Cage scene that they could meme up on the internet. I don't think so. No, because they're, they're, they're not happy about it being turned into like memes. Who is it? Like Nicolas Cage and Cosmo. No, the, but, but that's, they're, but I that's think they're very authentically. He I mean, but he didn't need to say, I understand what you're saying, but that's, he said that exact he said a line like that in that exact same way in like six movies since he went off the rails and started making these kind of low budget, just, you know, indie weirdo movies. Um, that's just like a thing that he does now where he just kind of screams the same thing over and over again. He only said it like twice, though. He but, did only say it twice. So it's not so bad. It's, no, maybe but it's just like because we're expecting it now. Well, that's my problem is that they. And, and it that, seems... it's like he didn't say it too much, but it's like the fact that he says it twice. I kind of hook into well, that. Well, so this is, I mean, this I really want to hear like lots more of, uh, of what you have to say but I think that's one of the things I liked about the beginning of this movie and I liked about the like, you know, the end of this movie. There's like a 20 minute stretch in the middle there where I'm just kind of I was, you know, in and out uh, um, The chemist scene's great though. I think. The chemist scene's, but the chemist scene's in my part that my chunk yeah. that is fantastic is that it seems to be subverting all the natural instincts of like what a movie like this is supposed to be doing. Um I think the cinematography is a part of that in the sense that it's so good. It's so fucking moody. And even when it's dark, the darkness is just intense. And there's, um, there's the colors to it, yeah. And, that, and there's, there's colors that just kind of like come out of nowhere and they're flashing. And you're just, but you don't care. You're not saying like what is happening here. You're just kind of like, oh, you're just drinking in. And then the score, which is one of the great film scores I think I've ever heard in my life. No, it's the second, I'd say it's the second best score of the year, for, um, for sure. And it's sad that, you know, it's Joe Johannes' um, like one of his last yeah. scores. I think he has a couple more, but I think, uh, you know, um, Johnny Greenwood's score is probably still a little better for your Never Really Here, but this is definitely up there. Yeah, uh, that would be an interesting podcast to kind of compare the two, because, yeah, I think they're going to be one and there two. Might be a, there might be an end-of-year podcast <laughs> where we talk about things like um, this. But all that stuff helped me, who's not a grindhouse revenge flick guy, to kind of to want to hang to want to hang with it. You know yeah. what I mean? And when it's it when it falls back on stereotypes, even if they're just kind of like a brief Nick Cageism, I'm just like ah, 
It's yeah. like a, it's like a, it's like a. It's because you, you expect so much from it that when it unchecked does, a box, you yeah, know what when I mean? it does something like that, it kind of falls flat. Yes. Um, but that bathroom. I mean, just talking really quickly about that bathroom scene. That bathroom scene. Um, but that bathroom scene really works. Yeah, it's just great. I mean, it, it, you you think he's gonna go over the top, like it really feels like it's building to that, but then he just kind of like. So basically, it's just right after Mandy dies. Um, he's he's been stabbed. He's bleeding. Uh, he's been basically covered in barbed wire. A lot of that this year. Mm. Huh? I really hope. Really hope uh, it's it's him and Ethan Hawke, and that's their Oscar kind of images. Yeah, if the Oscars <laughs> make a new category, it shouldn't be popular movies. You best encased in barbed wire scene. <laughs> um, but so he goes, dishes out a a hidden bottle of vodka, and that's what makes me think that he's like, you know, maybe a recovering alcoholic. Um, mm, he's drinking it. Sinking, yeah. yeah. He's drinking it, pouring it over his wounds, and he starts like doing this growl and this this grunt and this anger and anger, and then all of a sudden he just breaks. Mm-hmm. And it's very naturalistic. Well, it's a, I, mean, uh, I mean, it feels authentic. You kind of feel in that situation where if you had seen the ashen face of your the woman you're in love with, still like in the form of an ashen yeah, face, yeah, yeah. and then melt away, uh, I think I would react the same way. Right, but I think it's. I mean, I think it's. It's a great scene for all those reasons, but it's also a great scene because it's kind of funny. Yeah. But not funny because he's, it's Nick Cage overacting. It's because like, it's a medium shot of a guy wearing un- brief tidy whities, tidy whities and, a, and a tiger shirt. Yeah. Um, and, and in like a very 1970s decorated bathroom with like all the weird yellows and stuff. Um, it's just, it's a weird scene, but he's yeah, so that good yeah. that he's, I mean, it's, it makes it, it makes it a really powerful scene. It goes from being one thing and turns into another thing, which is kind of again speaks to that subversion idea. Um, and also the the I think the other great performance talk about this is Linus Roach oh, too. Yeah, he's so good, and I he's mean, so one. naked, so much. Yeah. <laughs> Just one of the, even before you can tie it. I mean, he plays you know the the cult leader who has this you know control is kind of like Charles Manson has control, but even before it makes it known he's very impotent mm-hmm. as a character, um, he, he just underlines that impotency so well that he's he's nothing still. That he's still he's only got a couple of followers. They're idiots except yeah. for that one guy who's also kind who's of also an, an idiot. idiot. But like the other guys just don't even true. seem like they're functioning humans. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I mean, I think <laughs> the my... porker who gets pulled back and it's like surprised look <laughs> yeah. on his face. Um, I mean, and then the elephant in the room, I suppose, is um, the the biker gang yeah. that comes out of thin air like aliens. Um, yeah, they get called by that, that horn of... But then, as it turns out, are just um, four guys that have been ruined by this really crazy LSD paste that they drink out of jars... That they kind of get fed as a as a reward to kind of keep them, keep them insane. Well, the and when Nick, Cage, when Nick Cage tastes it, and his and his brain explodes. Yeah, and and the thing that's nice about that too is uh, I think that's funny and a nice subversion is that that scene with Bill Duke before, where he goes, you know, you're probably gonna die, and Nicholas Cage says, you know, don't be negative so quietly, yeah. and then he just proceeds over like the next ten, like fifteen minutes to barely not get that badly hurt and kill all four guys. Yep. Who are just who are presented still like has these weird otherworldly monsters but are very easily dispatched, you know. 
well, one yeah. of them trips on his, you know, seven esque uh, blade dildo, and like it gets impaled in the yeah. ground, and then gets his neck sliced. And so they're all like, I think all the villains in this are represented as just like impotent. You know, none of them have any sort of gravity or weight or like true evil to them. They're just they are what you would expect them to be. <laughs> yeah. It's it's one of those one of those great movies where the you know someone's perception of what is actually happening here um uh comes you, you know you get to experience that with them. They're kind of awakening of what they're actually up against. I mean, what are what are some of the like cuz this scene this movie has so many fantastic like not even scenes, but just like images mm-hmm. and and moments that play no real part in like the plot, but are just great. I mean, the one I'm thinking of is when he's riding that quad away from the drug dealers, the chemist's house, going through the cave, or yeah, and it looks like fucking hell. Yeah, and there's <laughs> there's cars buried in like you know uh, buried in rock, and it looks like his quad is stuck in like lava and there's smoke coming out of and there's all these purple lights and you're just like what is this movie like, well it's a constant it? like descent into hell you know it's oh, like, it like, is. like in the ending when he goes to <laughs> kill jeremiah and um his his main woman follower who both try to use sexual favors to show like clearly yeah. their impotency um you know he descends into this like purple like this broken church and descends into this like basement that's in this like like cell thing yeah it's like weird sort of catacombs that shouldn't exist in backwoods america um it's 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 a good good move i mean i i think a lot of these kind of like drug infused movies never work for me me too um ken russell's altered state is Uh good uh jasper noel's air the void which isn't so much a drug movie but it's got all that stuff in there yeah yeah those rest too much in it too. Uh Jordan Wasky's um Holy Mountain. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I fucking hate that. Um but this just seems to have a control over it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's um it's operatic almost I want to say like there's there's a nice melody to it. So even though when it's moving slowly in the first in the act and then all of a sudden it ramps up and then really ramps up in that third act, that that pacing feels great to me. Um mm. Well, that's weird because they don't spend. He doesn't spend too much. He spends a lot of time over the arc of killing them, but he actually doesn't spend very much time killing them. Oh no! There's a lot of just this. There's a lot of where the whole movie feels like it's brooding and kind of like breathing deeply, like taking these like LSD breaths itself. Um, yeah, where I it's think, kind I think of the you only... as a viewer, you perceive like an aliveness to the film. The only like real fight in it is that that chainsaw fight, which I think is kind of like the weakest part. It's cool, it's fun, but it's it's weak. It doesn't fit in that movie. I think they just needed something. He they just wanted to throw something like that in. Yeah, chainsaw fight's cool. to look for good for a trailer. Yeah. Um, and, and the axe is definitely something they'd see from like a Kroll or like a Deathstalker, <laughs> like both nineteen eighty three, like those heavy metal sort of fantasy horror. Uh, Horrors of when I first saw that when we got to the X scene, I actually I rewound it, rewound, yeah, I rewound it. Um, be kind, rewound. Be kind, rewound. I rewinded it, <laughs> um, rewinded it, um, to make sure I didn't miss a part. And I was just like, so he's forging a battle axe. Yeah, he has that. Like he, he has just that went talent. right one from from one scene to forging a battle axe, and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, but you know what? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like, it, it works. Um, yeah. 
and and like this I, I wrote this down to me like this is just like all this is catharsis it's it's weird how cathartic everything in this movie feels mm. um it's just is nice to watch for being so unpleasant to watch in many ways we kind of—I feel like we talk a lot about violence on this show, but like I have less of a problem with this violence than I do in, um, you know, one of the movies we're like talking about next or week, or Green Room, or you know, even even stuff like Goodfellas. Um, I don't mind watching exploding heads, you know, as the battle axe gets tossed around and that guy's head explodes, or him push that battle axe into that guy's mouth, which is a great scene, just because that's fantastic. funny. Or like, <laughs> he's like talking and just. Or he lights the cigarette in one of the bikers like burning heads. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't mind. I don't I, mind that stuff. I think I think the final kills goofy. I think that's a little too over the top. Well, I feel like it's appropriate only in the sense that I, this, I, I'm I think reading. I'm reading into it a lot. It's cool in the sense that um, you know he really he like he like blew his mind. Yeah, like he says, "I'm your god," and like his final understanding of his relationship to God is so much that his fucking head explodes. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the very simple reason of Linus Rush just played such a great, slimy, oh, awful so villain good. that it's nice to see this guy's head just... His, see his eyes pop out. So, I mean, my favorite thing about the Linus Roach character is that he sometimes slips into, like, this weird New York accent sometimes. Yeah. And it's... I mean, and it's... Whether it happened on purpose or not, it adds, like, a great layer to this character about, like, what a, what a phony he is. Well, just some of, some of the, like... I think the the thing that really shows the best performance and you know Andrew Andrew Riseborough as yeah. well is is that double exposure oh, where he's talking man. to her and they lay over both of their faces. Fuck yeah, man! Um, that was and awesome. it required both of them to like act in the exact same way so they could blend perfect. I mean, I'm sure there's some digital editing that was good in there, but like that just I don't even know, man. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that was I mean, like that... you could tell me that all this was natural was like done Fine. somehow naturally. I'd be like, oh, yeah, apparently. But... But, I mean, that brought me right back to, like, you know, uh, Blade Runner 2049, um, when the two girls are layered on top of each other so he could have oh, yeah. sex with his... But scene that this, movie. it was, but this is almost better. It is, because you don't realize it at first. At first, you're like, he looks a lot like, oh. Oh. And it's so long, and it just kind of shifts back. Oh, that was that And was that's, fantastic. like, the closest thing. I, I mean, I've never taken LSD, but that's the closest thing. I, that's the one time I really kind of felt, like, tripped out in this movie. And I see a lot of people say like, oh, this feels somewhat trippy and like it feels like I'm on a drug trip and the fuck if I know. But that itself is, is like disconcerting mm. but but awesome. Well, and to draw another comparison It's too, nifty. A lot of this movie is just really right. nifty. Well, that's a perfect... Uh, it's a perfect I don't segue say this a lot. Nif- <laughs> niftiness. Yeah. Um, it's a perfect segue because you had mentioned we talked you know about the Greenwood score for You Were Never Really Here. I think those two movies... These two movies are really interesting to to think about from the context that both Lynn Ramsey and um, Panos Cosmatos have like a have a perfect control over what their movie is. It's they're not it's not just happening to them. They are dictating, you know, the look and the feel and the pace and and everything. And you don't I don't I feel like you don't get that a lot with especially with indie movies. Yeah, where it's you know there's a lot of improvisation and just kind of whatever and the camera works. Just the camera work. No, and I, I imagine Panos Cosmatos went up to King Crimson, grabbed him by the fucking throat, and was like, you're doing Mario, this goddamn song. Mario, that opening credit sequence, when that Robert Fripp, who's a guitar player in King Crimson, when that solo comes in, I was just kind of like, I wasn't crying, but my face like 
burst into like I, a super smile. It's, it's, it's like, weird. oh, it's so awesome. I'm smiling through a lot of this movie, and it's so not a movie you want to smile through. <laughs> no, but it's just a great flick. And yeah. it's and I feel like people aren't making great flicks anymore. They're trying to say something or they're trying to not do something. And this guy's just like, well, no, I'm going to do this. I like, can this see this movie and I'm just going to make that. This movie. What's it trying to say? Not a lot. There might be some like subtleties in this, but like you can find it. Like there's, you talked about like Mandy ascending to like become a God after she dies. Like divinity. It's like, whatever. Look, that's cool. <laughs> I, I can cares? accept that. I'll watch it. Like several more times to see if I can see find that. I mean, I'm sure it's something to do with like the tiger, like the the element oh, of the tigers the... <laughs> repeatedly. But I don't know what that is yet. No. But watch it a couple more times. I'm really and figure it, it out. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so don't watch Land of Steady Habit, but I think definitely do watch Mandy. And Even Mandy it... is out. I think in a couple of theaters. Yeah, someplace. it's around 200 theaters. It's expanding again. Um, expand well, it's Saturday, so it's expanded this weekend. So I don't know if it went to a couple hundred more theaters, but it's it's streaming it's on like on seven Amazon, bucks right. on Amazon Prime or Google Play. And you know what? If you're gonna watch this though, all at home, watch it in the dark, preferably with like a storm, but in the dark yeah. with the lights all off. Like I usually don't say like, oh, you don't have to watch the movies in the right scene with like the lights off. I watch a ton of movies with the lights on, and but this you have to you have to experience like and in the darkness. Just let and my advice would be, as part of that, just let go. Don't try to figure it out. Yeah, just no. experience because it's it is a visceral experience. And maybe drink like ten cups of coffee beforehand. Yeah. Get onto like that David Lynch mindset that he talks about, like before he makes each movie. Just fucking do that and just go with it. Yeah. Don't do acid before this though. I don't think that would work. I think it would be scary. I think that'd be bad. I if someone offers you a, a dirty jar of LSD paste, don't drink from it. <laughs> I don't recommend. <laughs> if there's any children listening to this podcast, if you ever get handed plaster of Paris <laughs> in a jar and get told to eat it, don't do it. Don't do it. You will Bad wear will weird, melty, hellraiser-like leather. And you will never take it off. Yeah. Okay. So. We'll be right back with our uh, number 91s. <laughs> All right, we're back with my number 91. It is Orson Welles' 1941 masterpiece, Citizen Kane. Um, A movie that does not show up on my list, I will say that right now. Right, and it's low on my list. I mean, 91 for Citizen Kane is not really supposed to happen, right? Yeah, I saw this for the first time that I actually forced myself to sit down and watch it all the way through was, was this week. Um, I'd seen it a few times before, but kind of passively. Mm-hmm. So, well, this is another just getting that out of the way before sure. people get but their it's, pitchforks. It's interesting to consider that our rival podcast, Unspooled, starring Paul Shear, has this is the first <laughs> episode we're, they did. We're definitely one hundred percent on their radar right now. They are yeah. afraid of us. Yep, rivals we're doing two different. Things. I didn't say rivals by accident. No, um, but this is the first movie they did because it's AFI's. They're counting down. From number one to 100 AFI's top 100 movies. This is their number one movie. Why are they going that way? I don't know. That seems silly. Whatever. Um, My relationship with this movie starts uh, in the exact same way that Accidental Tourist starts. It's the movie we watched after Accidental Tourist. Um, In my film is lit class in high school. It got pitched to us as the best movie ever. And... Everything I read about it after the fact uh, corroborated that theory that this was, in fact, the greatest movie ever. 
So my first viewing of it resulted in me thinking I had seen the greatest movie ever. Um, we did a kind of scene-by-scene scene analysis of it. Um, I don't remember when any of those things were, except for one specific scene, which we'll come back to. Um, but after I saw it, it was one of those things you kind of check a box off. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I saw Citizen Kane. Okay, good. Now I can move on with my life. Um, that's a little bit how I kind of dealt with the last two movies, too, with Fargo and Goodfellas. They're just kind of movies, if you really like movies, at some point you have to see Goodfellas, you have to see Fargo. How you feel about them is immaterial. They're just movies you have to see. Um, the second time I saw this movie, I it was a you know kind of how you just said. I kind of sat down and forced myself to watch it just to see what happened. Um, and I don't remember anything specifically happening as much as my appreciation for the technical craft of it kind of deepened because I had seen a bunch of movies and I was like, oh, this movie's doing things that I I haven't seen before. And you know, um, I, I I hadn't I haven't seen that shot in a lot of movies and I haven't seen this use of of shadows and why are they using so many shadows and and they're still like today you know a lot of people will kind of argue not a lot of people but some people argue that it's lost its aura in the sense of films have like it did it was the first one to do certain things yeah. and film since then has kind of like taken all those well, yeah things it's done and, and advanced from there but there's still a lot of shots and a lot of things in there that that stand out today and i think that's a good point because i'm not sure that it's lost its aura i just think its aura has changed so um roger ebert is a big Citizen Kane guy. He's on the back of the DVD saying, this might be the greatest movie he ever did, made. He did a full-length commentary on Citizen Kane. He did, and he um, says in his great movie essay on Citizen Kane that he's you know done several shot-by-shot analyses of this movie and says that he's not sure that there's anything else for him to find in this movie, but the movie still compels him to see it again and to continue to look. Um, but from another review of his... That I want to relate to this movie because I actually think it's more relevant for normal people, not film nerds like Mario or me or other people. Um, is and he says this about the battleship Potemkin, but I'm not sure it's. I've never seen that. <laughs> I'm not sure it's true. That'll be funny in a while. The man. battleship Potemkin. I'm not sure this quote is true of the battleship Potemkin anymore. Um, he says that. Um, because it has worn out its element of surprise that, like the 23rd Psalm or Beethoven's Fifth, it has become so familiar we cannot perceive it for what it is. I think that is true of what's happening with Citizen Kane, maybe culturally, is that Citizen Kane now has become so ubiquitous to film culture that nobody really knows how to look at it anymore. Um, the luster of Citizen Kane perhaps has gotten worn away by years and years of analysis and calling it the greatest movie that's ever been made and people just kind of accepting it's the greatest movie that's ever been made not, and not really not really wondering why and not really doing not really taking the time to establish that this movie is doing um, the job of a movie which is which is to move you which is to make you to make you feel something um, other than just kind of amazement that this movie exists or that you just saw this movie um well i think i think actually a good example of that is how one shot that that's just great in it um from from a storytelling standpoint and i don't think there's there's a lot of shots that really say a lot to me from a storytelling standpoint in this mm -hmm. film but uh 
Kane's, you know, Orson Welles' maniacal like clapping mm. after Susan's performance has now become basically a internet meme. Like that's that's a gif you see everywhere when they when they're applauding something. It's just that picture because mm-hmm. it's so crazy looking because it is because mm-hmm. like it's you know it's it's a very he's trying to justify his what he wanted her to become, um, but in context of the film, it's it's extraordinarily well shot and well acted scene, but it's become so normalized in culture now. That you know, a lot of people might see that and go like, "Oh, it's that, that oh, that's thing. that, yeah, that's that meme, yeah," and not like, and you know, completely removed from the context, yeah, of exactly. The movie. But I think part of that is that nobody knows what to do with this movie anymore. So, I mean, for using myself as an example, the last two I've seen it twice in the last two years: once to do this, and once a year ago because I was taking a class called Journalism in Film. And it was all movies. I don't see the relation. To, to what? I don't see how journalism and this film are related. It was a stretch, I know, yeah. you know, but um, so it was all. <laughs> see, I said a joke that re- unrecorded fell flat. That one also fell flat. So we're both guilty of it. This is an off joke night, maybe. Because <laughs> um, I'm not really drinking. Well, yeah, maybe we'll, if we keep drinking this, yeah, it's not going to get any better. Um, the journalism in film course was watching all movies that had journalism in it so stuff as recent as spotlight and the paper um the absolutely horrible broadcast news um all the president's men all the president's men um what's that sally field paul newman movie from the 80s Uh, i just shrugged out i don't know i forget what it is it was not a very good movie either um but the whole thing started with this movie and he really he hammered on the news the newspaper stuff i mean for him this is a movie about newspapers not the media, Mario, about newspapers and the relationship between society and newspapers and the relationship between the people that ran newspapers and wrote for newspapers and the new and the newspaper and the role of the newspaper. Even though that's only about 40 minutes of the film. But that's, I think, the point of the movie is that at the time for me, I was writing an essay completely absent of this, kind of analyzing my relationship to the things in my life. So like my favorite records and my favorite books and my favorite movies. It's one of the things that, you know, this podcast stems from. So I really focused on the end of the movie, the line where, you know, everyone's walking through the mountains of stuff and, you know, people are throwing ideas out about, about, you know, what they've been accomplishing. And someone says, I wonder you put all this together, the palaces and the paintings and the toys and everything, what would it spell? And someone just says, Charles Foster Kane. And to me, that became kind of the essence of the movie. When you play it back in your head, you're like, oh, yeah, it's all just a collection of stuff. Like he spends his whole life amassing stuff to try to replace Rosebud. And it, it can't replace Rosebud. And that speaks to me in this way. Um, but this most recent viewing, I didn't think that way. My view of it has actually completely changed. And it's, you know, related to this line. Um where they're talking about, in the beginning of the movie, when they're talking about what Rosebud might mean, and someone throws out the idea, like, it's a racehorse that he bet on once, it didn't come in, and then someone kind of jumps in front of the screen in the shadows and says, but what race? Um, kind of signifying to me that what Orson Welles may have been doing was kind of making a movie full of MacGuffins. Mm. Whereas you can watch this movie and it can be anything you want it to be. And he's really just exploring the the 
the possibilities of film. And to do that, he needed a story that would handle, you know, that really heavy idea. Um, and you kind of talked about off air that, you know, from an American cinema standpoint, he was just kind of throwing, he just took everything that American cinema could do and just did it. Oh, yeah. There's, all in one movie. there's a discussion that, um, like, Greg Tolan, the cinematographer, had had of this film that, you know, some of the things that are kind of held in high regard about this film are kind of accidents mm-hmm. in the sense of, um, the transitions, uh, the way the lighting was done. Orson Welles, who was used to theater at the time. And was radio. Like, yeah, and radio. But theater especially was like he decided to like do the scene transitions in a way that was more theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, and it led to those interesting kind of like dissolves. And so it's kind of like a lot of this film to me is a lot of interesting happy accidents and experimentation. He's 25 years old when he does this. Right. And he plays so he's still a kid. And he plays a pretty good old man until he gets really fat and really old. Um, so, I mean, the makeup stuff for a while is actually really, really good. Yeah. Um, until the characters get too old and then it just becomes becomes kind of silly. Well, yeah, you could definitely see the lines of where the makeup is. But still, for 1941 and the fact that he was, um, I can't remember who the makeup artist was off the top of my head. I didn't write it down. Uh, this is actually the interesting story about that, I'll, I'll say in a second. Um, but he was like one of the first ones to kind of just do molds Mm -hmm. of the actor's faces to to make it much easier to do. So Mm -hmm. once again, groundbreaking things going on. The interesting story about that was he was not even a union card carrying member, uh, the makeup artist and Orson Welles got invited to the white house. And one of the people there is Francis Perkins, the Mm -hmm. head of the labor department, um, author of the new deal. Fuck you. FDR. (laughs) Francis Perkins is great people if you don't know about her read into her um and uh there was she somebody from the labor department called the next day to the makeup union and uh he got his his union membership from that oh nice so francis perkins once again to be one of the greatest badasses in american history should have been the first woman american president but fdr just kept staying in office all right well that's a different podcast that's when me and mario count down our hundred favorite historical Persons. <gasps> I like that idea. Light bulbs just went off. Oh, I'm already right. starting to think about what we're going to talk about after like, we get to number one. Um, and this becomes pivotal. Yeah. This becomes a, this becomes a pivotal podcast. Um, there's a book that I just read about the Beatles by um, Rob Sheffield, who writes for Rolling Stone and stuff. And um, he writes a whole book where he kind of analyzes the Beatles you know, existence through his fa- his super fandom. In the last chapter of the book, he kind of synthesizes the rest of the book by saying that the reason that the Beatles have prolonged, or the reason that the Beatles have stayed relevant through the years is that whatever the culture has needed the Beatles to be, we could make them that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in like the 70s, when we needed them to be, you know, hip rock and rollers, we could make them that. In the 80s, when we needed them to be a nostalgia act, like, we just kind of made them a nostalgia Like, the culture decided, oh, they're a nostalgia act. Now we can rebuy all the stuff and repay attention to them. In the 90s, they were kind of a pinnacle musical group that a lot of these 90s alt-rock bands based their, based their music on. And in 2000, when we were kind of, we were all so aware of everything that they did, and we had consumed so much Beatles stuff, we just decided to make them the greatest band that ever walked the face of the earth. Um, and they've just stayed there forever. I wonder if Citizen Kane is kind of like that 
too. Yeah. Where it can kind of just, it's so, it's so ingrained in American culture that it can kind of just outside of film culture, it kind of just be whatever you need it to be. And every time you see it, you can, you know, you'll feel something different. It might not be your favorite movie and it might not move you to tears and it might not make you laugh out loud or cry or, or, or even kind of sit back and, 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 you know, be nostalgic for something else, but it, it'll put thoughts in your head. It'll put a new thought in your head. It'll put a new idea in your head. So, to preface, technical masterpiece. The the use of, like, the composites of two different shots to create deep focus. You know, mm-hmm. the first time ever doing that, there was a shot early on where Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles were standing next to each other in two different depths of fields, and they had to splice a shot together in order to have that mm-hmm. work on both ends. The, the use of scenery, the use of... Um, some of the editing techniques, uh, the the inner camera composites, like creating that, like creating a thing where you kind of double expose the shots to get that depth of field, mm-hmm. um, the low hanging shots, you know, to film the ceiling to give a better depth of perception, the use of lighting from the ground, technically a masterpiece. As Jorge Luis Borges, the, the Argentine poet, kind of said about this film, you know, is he says it is a work of genius. Um, but to expand upon that, he also says. It is too gigantic, pedantic, tedious. It is not intelligent, though it is a work of genius, in the most nocturnal and Germanic sense of that bad word. And ultimately, as much as I respect this film, mm-hmm. I agree. But how I not intelligent? What's not intelligent about it? Not intelligent in the way that I don't think it's saying a lot. There's sequences that work for me in terms of a story. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene where Wells, as Kane, is, is begging Susan to stay. Mm-hmm. Fantastic performance. Um, you know, just just a marvelous performance, a great scene. And then when he kind of like walks out in the depth of the field of the shot of showing the different rooms, you know, unknown at that time. Right. But it's such a patchwork film for me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not extraordinarily well edited in terms of its story. I'm not mm-hmm. discrediting Robert Wise. You know, go and do West Side Story, which I really enjoy um, as a director and writer. But there's an early scene where Jerry, who's the reporter, goes to talk to Susan. You know, she's a drunk by this point. She's the ex-wife. And she kind of like brushes him aside. And then later she says, I'll tell you the story now. And it's like it's a four or five minute sequence that doesn't need to be there. And there's no payoff to that. Well, and the problem with that scene, I think, is that they do that same kind of semi-famous you know, push in over the the top of the roof in the rain. Yeah. And the models the are great too. But... The models are great, but they do it twice. They yeah, do the same time. shot. I think three times. I That's... think they do a pullback later too. Oh, do they? Yeah. But I'm saying, but to get to Susan sitting at a table, they do the same shot twice. Yeah, and it's... Why do the same? I mean, why do that two times? It's, it is, for me, beyond an intellectual appreciation of what it's doing and still some fantastic framings of shots. It's, laborious to get through oh see i don't and i i I don't get anything emotionally from it i don't get anything from it beyond a um from a thematic standpoint i get a lot from it in terms of my appreciation of cinema Mm -hmm. in terms of my appreciation of it being yeah it is without a doubt i think the the technical masterpiece in the terms of what it did for film Mm -hmm. um i think 
Battleship Potemkin, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari are also kind of big examples of that. So once again, Ebert, Battleship Potemkin, whatever. Um, he likes Battleship Potemkin. Yeah, I know. I'm just, I just get, I'm just book. mad now. I'm just mad about that. <laughs> Give me a second. Um, and from that point of view, I agree. And there's there's moments like, you know, Kane's, and I think all the moments that kind of strike to me are just based purely on Orson Welles' performance. Orson Welles I think he's the has one that one, has like probably together, yeah. my second greatest performance of all time. Um, not in this film, but in another film of his for me. Uh, a movie we'll talk about way later. Um, I think he's one of the best actors that lived, personally. Uh, and and I see that here. Um, but everything else doesn't work. I think Dorothy um, Collingor is, is awful. Oh, she's terrible. She and and it's it's really striking in the argument where she's talking about how she doesn't want to do the opera anymore well, with Orson Welles, and it's just two people acting on totally different levels. Like she's not even it's like, like, it's on the like floor. You will continue with your singing, Susan. I don't propose to have myself made ridiculous. You don't propose to have yourself made ridiculous. What about me? I'm the one that's got to do the singing. I'm the one that gets the raspberries. Why don't you? My reasons satisfy me, Susan. You seem unable to understand them. I will not tell them to you again. You will continue with your singing. When the note yeah, and there's, the there's always that yeah, statement yeah. of, you know, you're, I'm playing major league while you're playing little league, and that's, they're like playing two different games. She's, she's so strikingly out of the league of this man. Mm-hmm. Um, that that it's it's distracting, uh, and and there's 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 a lot of from a story standpoint for me just a lot of things that show the immaturity of the age. There's a lot of things that that are smart. The use of the newsreel, yeah, is is great. It's a little long, too long. It's it's really the newsreel. Ex, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's a lot of exposition. Well, I think he's trying to establish like a, a whole from like he's, they say in the newsreel. He's kind of establishing. This whole world, yeah. the development of culture from one type of universe, one type of world to another type of world. Yeah, I just and how and how you know, um, Kane influenced that world. And it's it's just interesting. I, I think, you know, Orson Welles and Mankiewicz win the the Oscar for for screenplay, screenplay and yeah. I think that's the one Oscar this movie did not deserve. Well, it's it, it's weird. I mean, you can almost not give them. You can say you they don't deserve the Oscar for the choices that they made because. In the movie, they bring up all these really interesting topics and kind of how we just we just mentioned, you know, through the newsreel there saying that, you know, oh, um, Kane, Charles Foster Kane influenced, you know, all these world affairs and he met all these weird people and blah, blah, blah. But the whole point of the movie boils down to his relationships with two women, his relationship with his friend and his relationship to his to his stuff. Yeah. They have some throwout remarks through the movie about how he influenced the Spanish-American War. Um, they have some throwout remarks, you know, about him going to Europe and who he saw in Europe and and things like that. Um, and even the political intrigue part with him and Gettys is like an interesting scene, but so short and so well, like it's, a, it's an interesting scene in the sense that like you would have to imagine that the Jim Getty, sorry, the the stuff the behind the scenes stuff of what Jim Geddes was actually doing was probably way more interesting than trying to influence this election by using an infidelity of Charles Foster Kane against him, right? Like all this kind of 
all these kind of backrooms dealings that like boss Jim Gettys is supposed to have been done that would make him so reprehensible that Kane would have to you know rail against him for so much. Is that way more interesting? Well, the, here, here's the police they're, coming. They're coming to get him. They're coming to get us. For, 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 they're coming to get me for my opinion on Citizen Kane. You're, you are wearing a sideways bowler hat <laughs> on your head. Um, isn't all that stuff way more interesting than like who his wife happens to be? And that's why I think the Borgia's quote, one part of it strikes me the most. Um, I don't think it's really pedantic or really tedious because there's a lot of interesting things going on there. But I think it is too gigantic. I think it I aspires think so to do too much. And it ends up being frustrating right. because there's so much really interesting things that are just barely touched upon. It just feels like you're constantly being cocked teased. Well, I think that's <laughs> I think it's interesting. Um, and there's a shot that I would pull out of this that kind of exemplifies that in the sense that he was always trying to do something. So remember the scene when he's you know begging Susan not to leave. Um, I just I just mentioned that scene. Right. Um, but right after she leaves, mm. you know he tears the room apart. And it's a really kind of interesting use of sound design and also perspective. You know, he looks yeah, like, a, like has that low perspective. He's got a, he looks like a giant. The ceilings are, you know, the ceilings he's are even really, lump, his, his actions are like a giant. Like the right, way he lumbers isn't so much like an old over. man, but like somebody who's lost his like footing. That's I, I've always found that to be a really great scene. Something I noticed, though, when watching it this newest time is that it's the ceilings are really low the whole scene. So they're doing this this long kind of, you know, dialogue between them about the fact that she's leaving and he doesn't want her to leave and there's a maid there and she's packing. But his head is almost touching the ceiling like the whole time he's in there. And the door's really low too. And the door's really low and, it, and he has to walk through the door. And um, it kind of muted the impact of him tearing the room apart when I was like, well, he just made this set low so he could shoot this one this after scene and get a, like a real effect from this after scene but he didn't i think in a different movie maybe in a modern movie they would have done that with like computers they would have lowered the ceilings for the you know the scene he was going to are we do. saying are you saying we should remake this i think leonardo dicaprio is probably working on that right now yeah <laughs> leonardo DiCaprio no it's, it's, james, it's james franco oh james franco yeah, yeah james of franco course. he's got he's taking it on he's like i'm gonna do it's a disaster all the Court McCarthy movies, books, and then I'm going to tackle Citizen Kane. No, he's going to do, he did The Room, he did the worst movie ever, now he's going to do the best movie ever. The behind the scenes making of, with him and his brother. Larry did like a making of this, didn't they? With uh, RKO 281. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's one of those things where like he just, every scene had so much going on. Every frame had so much going on that sometimes... That stuff gets lost. Yeah. Like an unrepeated, unrepeat, And that's, that's one of the reasons I find this movie really interesting is that I can find these holes in it but still find, like, new things to latch onto. Like some of the politics in this movie and some of the commentary about, um, you know, the consumer's relation to media and how news is kind of created. You know, he says a bunch of time, like, the news is what I say the news is or, like, they think what I tell them to think. Um is so is so modern and so but now. At, but at the same time, also so of the time. I mean, yellow journalism was not a new conceit at the time. I no, mean, but I mean, consider the... It being I, a really Randolph Hearst kind of No, but consider character. every stupid interview by every dumbass who's in The Front Runner that isn't, you know, Hugh Jackman or Vera Farmiga. Um, 
I just listened to an interview. Bill Burr. I was going to say, just listened to an interview with Bill Burr, and he was, like, waxing poetic about, like, you know, the Gary Hart thing and blah, blah, blah. And everyone's like, oh, it's the first time it's ever been used. I was like, yeah, obviously Citizen Kane's not real. But, like, he that's not, like, a new concept that you could destroy a politician by saying, yeah, he was sleeping with some, yeah. you know, singer somewhere. Um, all these things kind of, it's it's such a weirdly American movie that it, as long as America is still what it is, it's going to kind of always be somewhat relevant. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Which is kind of amazing. Speaking of America and Americans thinking about Citizen Kane, uh-huh. do you know who did a, a very interesting four-minute review of this film? Who? Mr. Donald J. Trump. Did he? Yeah, he was a fan. He said... He said it's about the uh, sadness of wealth and about the loneliness of wealth. That's what he took away from it. Oh, man. He really likes that table sequence about the, you know, the, the elonging of the table and getting further away from one another. And then she's reading the rival's paper, which is, which is a smart scene. Like, there's, there's things he does. Yeah. That's what bugs me. Is there things in here that are really, really clever. Like, the holding up of the newspaper, you know, saying Kane wins and, like, the actual one being used is the one like Kane yep. loses uh landslide lost Boat of fraud. Lights, Boat of fraud. Um But there's so many things in here that, that they're just dull or trying too much or extraneous that you still get the image of an imperfect filmmaker. And I think later on I would I would say like Touch of Evil is a mm-hmm. film of his that I think is, is a more perfect film. And so that's why I say like I respect what is done here. And, and I do would never criticize the fact that it's like you know the number one movie on the AFI list or Sight and Sounds number one movie forever. Then Vertigo replaced it. Don't get that. Um, I really don't get that. Mm. Still wonder to this day how what people saw. I think we're Vertigo. going through a Hitchcock. Like people were going through a Hitchcock thing. Oh, that's point. fine. But Vertigo of all the Hitchcock movies. Um, but it's either that or you know what's the there's there's several others. But birds. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking of Rope. Rear window. Just a rope, rope. Um, but and that that's what that's what's bothersome to me is there's a lot of greatness in here, but I think from a story perspective there's a lot of immaturity and that's what what always struck me as. And I saw like I think that's the problem too is I saw this movie later in life after I've seen all the films that yeah. influenced and after I've seen you know tons of German expressionism which which kind of influenced some of the things he did here. Um. And so it lost maybe some of this impact for me. Well, it's interesting that you say that. There's a quote in the Jeff Dyer book about uh, Tarkovsky's stalker where he says about – he saw the stalker in his 20s and he makes this kind of general comment that, um, you know, you're going to see the films that kind of transform your view of film in your in your 20s, which I think is, is, probably, is probably true-ish. Because I would say that my view of what – I appreciate it in films didn't come from Citizen Kane directly. It came from a lot of the stuff that I saw after Citizen Kane. It came from all the stuff that I saw at the York Square Cinema. It came from all the stuff that I saw, you know, in that mid-2000s range where I said, you know, this this movie, this movie, this movie, this movie, put those all together, and that's a kind of uh, a fairly good 
um, expression of of who I am and what I want out of a movie. And that's why this is your ninety one. Like this even is my ninety one because it, if we're talking about the greatest movies of all time, the greatest films of all time, and their influence on cinema, if that was this podcast, we would be talking. We'd both be talking about this film a lot later. Well, I think we'd be also be talking having a, a fairly sad. Just like yeah, you know. And that's why we didn't want to do an intellectual it did this conversation. Really well. There on was that film. one dissolve where the door of the actual apartment became the door on the newspaper. Yeah, that and that's, was good. And that's the thing. Like we we had talked about this when we were creating the podcast about you know what we wanted from it, what we we're going to talk about it, and ultimately it is about the expression of film lovers uh, and maybe people who see more film than than normal and how they. They interpret film personally, mm-hmm. you know, because I think I think there's enough conversation from people much more adept at this sort of thing and about that, Citizen Kane. And then have seen Citizen Kane way more times than we have and have read all the different things that there is to read about Citizen Kane and can talk about, you know, who can every nuance at, of its creation. Who can look at every shot and tell you exactly what that is, how exactly that was made. Right. We can't do that. We can't do that. And I actually think it's probably good because it's still... You know, the scene where... But it keeps you know, us, I think... Oh, sorry. I, let me go finish. No, no, because I think we're probably going to talk about the same thing. I mean, uh, I'm going to talk... You were going to talk more generalities. And generalities, I'm going to talk about a scene. Like the scene where Leland and Kane are having that conversation after Leland comes in drunk after the election. After mm-hmm. Kane loses the election. The whole scene is shot from the floor. And, you, you know, you just see Kane in the deep background. You see Leland's feet kind of kicking around the you know, the streamers and stuff like that. And you can say to yourself after seeing it a couple of times, like, well, that's kind of awesome. Yeah. And no one would shoot that scene like that anymore, but that scene really works. Or even the scene, another Kane and Leland scene where Kane is writing, um, Leland's article and Kane is in the extreme foreground and Leland is coming out of the background with another one of those deep focus shots. Um, and it almost looks like kind of a diorama where they just cut out around Kane's moving head and just pasted it onto a, a, a you know, a, a long shot of, of Leland coming out of the room. Um, it's kind of oddly thrilling from a filmmaking perspective. Like, yeah. wow, that's, you know, that's cool. Like that, that's, that looks awesome. And it's, I suppose it's in service to something really awesome too, but it looks cool. See, I, I guess my argument was going to be just kind of, once again, going back to like the, the generalities Citizen Kane's interesting to me. That's kind of why I want to might be my last personal opinion on this. Is is it is a film that kind of separates the people who really love film as entertainment and the people who love film in this higher sort of intellectual level. Mm-hmm. And I just reading a lot of like the kind of Reddit sort of movie criticism or confusion over Citizen Kane of people not really understanding like people love it. Right. And and there's two classes of people, the people who kind of like try to explain like, oh, because of this shot or what it did or like the history of it, but like, or like their personal interaction with it. And I think that's what we're trying to do. Right. That's exactly what um, You know, we, neither of us are, we shit talk a lot of movies, um, but we've, we've kind of made a core thing of if you can argue and defend why you like a movie, you know, we'll, we'll listen if you can do it soundly. Well, kind Unless of like it, how we talked about with Armand White last week. He's got a lot of weird things to say about things. But he writes about them so well that you're kind of like, maybe. Yeah, I, mean, I, I won't agree, but I'm not going to discredit that sort of opinion. Um, and anybody that can like, say why a movie touches them, even if I hate that movie, if it's Dr. T and the Women, no, 
you know, <laughs> I mean, but if you could eloquently defend why you love that film, I'm not going to change my opinion on it, but I'm at least going to listen to you. Email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com and tell us why you love Dr. T and the women. We do one of you. And we'll argue it. Yeah. Um, that movie is awful, by the way. Not going to be on my list. That's one of my least favorite films of all time. Uh, fuck you, Robert Allman. Um, but then there's the other class of people with Citizen Kane. The people who like, who have more, more intellectual experience, like, of course it's great. Like, you know, this shows like the lack of knowledge you have about film. And that's what that's what's always troubling to me in the sense of the discussion. There was that, we're talking off air about how Ebert was interviewed in the late 90s about his trouble with people's experience with film and about how they were ignoring a bunch of really small cinema to go see things like Twister and Independence Day, and they're mm-hmm. wasting their time. And for me, somebody who's seen a lot of films, I really enjoy, for just the fun of it, films like Twister and Independence Day, while also, also appreciating those smaller films he talked about and loving those films more that he talked about. But Well, you're appreciating them on a different level. Yeah. So there's a visceral quality to one's enjoyment of something like Twister or Independence Day or one of those movies. You and want a thrill ride every so often. Right, but I mean, I think, you know, in a lot of the movies we're going to talk about much later on our list, but even some of the ones we're talking about now, um, some of the things you find thrilling is your or that you can find thrilling is your intellectual relationship no, exactly. with those movies. Like my number 91 we're going to talk about in a minute is really just kind of like a thrill ride for me. It's it's hailed, but it's is there because it's just thrilling. Um, but that's that's always been my, my interesting thing with Citizen Kane. That's why I kind of like respect Citizen Kane and what it does for the, the history of film is the sense of it's so divisive. Not necessarily divisive, but it's so interesting to see people's relationship with it and how they relate other people's opinions on it yeah it's, so it's and i think that's really awesome and i think it's it's ubiquity that kind of has established that as the thing that makes it interesting because mm-hmm. like how you got to talk like how do you see it like what are you seeing when you see this movie um are you seeing it through like a fresh pair of eyes are you or are you seeing it through like the hundreds of millions of other eyes that have already seen it and commented on it and you know whose thoughts on it are almost as ubiquitous as the film yeah no exactly um yeah it's i mean it's an interesting movie but it's an interesting um like cultural artifact no exactly if we were talking about the pivotal films in the experience of how they influenced film this is top five at without argument but that's harder for us to track but yeah but we once again, and someone has already made that, that film. Yeah. yeah, and somebody's already made that film. Somebody's already made that argument, and that's not what we're doing. We're yeah. doing our pivotal movies. Um, do you have any? No. Things else to say Let's about take a game? break. All right, we'll be right back with my number nine to one. Welcome back. My number ninety-one is 1987's cyberpunk you could say i don't agree with that but that's what wikipedia says uh action film starring famed american singer songwriter ronnie cox and i guess also peter weller and kirkwood smith <laughs> it is paul verhoven's robocop mm-hmm. uh, quick plot description peter weller plays a police officer a normal everyday uniform police officer who gets transferred to a new station uh in the midst of gross gangland violence in detroit um detroit's become this corporate dystopia uh on his first day with his new partner um 
he has killed by a gang. Sure. Uh, he is killed you know, a little bit. Just just slightly. Um, and then uh, the Omni Consumer Products Corporation takes what remains of him, his brain and bits of his body, really just his face, and uh, turns him into a robotic police officer that will be uh, the new force of Detroit. Um, and from there, you get a little, little reserved <laughs> PG-13 action film um, with, with nice social commentary mm. and satire. Uh, as Paul Verhoeven has become to be known for. He's famous for that, yeah. yeah. For his mild-mannered yeah, films. Not so on the nose and not so over the top with his commentary on society. Yeah. I, I mean, I had seen only parts of this movie before. What? I, I saw this movie when I was seven years old. <laughs> here's the Isn't this saying a lot about... Here's the thing, though. I can understand... I, I can kind of understand it not on tv either by the way i I saw like the my dad was like you should watch this movie and like the r-rated not the not the uh, unrated cut which only has four or five extra seconds uh but the r-rated cut oh okay um (laughs) yeah now 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 tom's just disturbed and is slowly moving away from me no but i think one of the things i think i found i actually kind of I enjoyed it a little bit, even though it's not my kind of movie. And the reason I enjoyed it is because every time somebody gets just dismantled in a hail of bullets, someone's always smiling close by. If it's the first guy who gets killed by Ed. um, Oh, Kinney. Kinney. um, No one seems to have a problem with it, really. And someone's always kind of, you know, happy to capitalize on it. And the loss of life is always kind of just, meh, it's a dead guy. It's just another dead guy. So even, like, at the end of the movie where RoboCop, um, you know, blows away Ronnie Cox, um, there is Felton Perry as Donald Johnson. Felton they're Perry. To, they're going to give him a thumbs my, up and a smile. <laughs> Felton Perry is easily my... My favorite part of this film, to be honest, like in terms of acting. Oh, it's so great. You know, he's, he's I mean, which is like included in the fact that like I've always as a kid loved Ronnie Cox as a villain. Uh-huh. Um, the reason I actually saw this. So kind of getting into that like, yeah, really quickly. Um, I had saw Total Recall first. Uh-huh. So another very reserved Paul Verhoeven action movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, that movie doesn't show up on my list. But I really enjoyed that for how much fun it was. Uh, yeah, um, I, I mean, I liked. I actually liked that era of Arnold Schwarzenegger stuff. So oh, I was, I was all yeah. in on that. Stuff. Basically, everything from like the Predator era to Last Action Hero. Last Action Hero, I'd uh, say. Last I Action Hero was Last really Action good. Hero, yeah, um, it's actually coming back into to fame now for like how is it out really? of its time it was. Well, it's John McTiernan directed that too. Yeah, I saw that in theaters. I did too. I saw the opening day. I was yeah, very excited. That was a good one. Charles Dance is the bad guy in it. You got that glass bit. eye is like was the greatest thing I had ever seen up to that point. In my yeah, life. No, that's, that's a good movie. Um, and then event, unfortunately, he then like lost the plot with a razor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a razor. I watched rewatched. It's the funny. Recently. I mean, this is a totally it's different awful. conversation, but a razor is the dividing line. Now. Yeah, no, a razor is really bad. Yeah, I mean, outside of James Caan, who's a re- pretty entertaining villain in that, mm-hmm. um, just because he's so 
relentlessly corny but evil. Yeah, like yeah. for no real That's good kind of reason. How he is in like every... <laughs> um, that movie's that movie's terrible. But so, anyways, I had seen Total Recall first, and I had really enjoyed Total Recall. Total Recall is a movie I saw a lot. It's it's not as good. En- it's not good enough of a movie, I think, to have made my list. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely kind of straddles the line. And my dad was like, "Well, if you like this movie, you should see RoboCop." And I saw RoboCop, and it just struck me. Not so much for the for for an action film, amazing. I mean, I I even back then kind of noticed a lot of the corniness of it in oh, the sense so of the special corny. effects. Uh, not so I don't I don't really find the film itself corny. Like, <laughs> you're looking at me oddly, but I don't really find. I find like so it's corniness intentional in terms of the story. Uh huh. Least. My personal and people think, after I'd said like after I'd kind of like shit talk sis and Kane's story, people are like, "Well, we can't fucking listen to this guy anymore." <laughs> but I, it knows what it's doing, and it kind of like settles in on that. And I think that's really well shown with Rehoven. I don't yeah. like it, but Starship Troopers knows how corny that material is, and it just kind of like rests in it. Rehoven, I think, is intelligent enough to know what he's doing, to know like he has somewhat silly material, but kind of lean into it in a clever way. I I agree with you. I think he's 100% in on the corniness of this movie. Yeah, but the corniness for me comes in the way Ed walks in, in, the, in the beginning. Like, the, obviously, the technology wasn't really there, but right. it's really badly stop motion. But the thing that really gets me is Dick Jones' death. Um, a year later, you know, Hans Gruber falls out of a building, and the way they do that is they have Alan Rickman, um, they actually drop him about 30 feet unannounced they don't tell him they, he says like countdown from 10 and they just drop uh-huh. him and it looks great you know so a year earlier paul verhoeven just had like a claymation ronnie cox fall and the great. arms expand out to like now my, twice his wingspan my question is does he hit the ground no because he, i think he flies away i think i think that jones actually is. survives and just flies okay, away good. I really don't know what's going on there and why that happens. I didn't look into it. Was I just, it, like a, it, it feels like better California. not knowing why. It look, he looks like a California. When I saw that, I actually thought um, in the early 90s when I saw this, one of the most popular commercials was the California Raisins. Sure. Yeah, I love California Raisins. And he looks like the California Raisin then. Yeah, he and does. That was, that was just entertaining to me. But the thing that really struck me when I first saw this was some of the social was this kind of weirdly enough the social commentary um and i i got this more in re- repeated viewing yeah, when yeah. i first saw it was seven obviously i just like that was a bloody action movie with a robot killing people a cyborg um upholding the law and being a very just sort of man debating with his to me but you know just just and not the, being the able kid to things. run for no reason yeah <laughs> um but then as i saw it later on I would watch this repeatedly, this and Total Recall kind of over and over again, at least like two times a year. Mm-hmm. So I game like 12 or 13. So that social commentary started like being really funny. I'll buy that for a dollar. Like yeah, just yeah. the repeated things you hear of, <laughs> I'll buy that for a dollar. And you see that now kind of repeated in like a lot of things like Idiocracy or, or those kind of movies that do those same sorts of jokes of like how the denigration of society starts with, mm-hmm. you know, Running Man's another example. Yep. Um, with just really boring, dull television that just tells the same joke over and over again that isn't funny. Um, the one thing I really loved, you know, as I was around 13, was like 97, 98, where environmental protectionism kind of like took off in global warming, was the 8.7 miles per gallon. Oh, and yeah, that yeah, being yeah. hailed as like the best in cars. Because mm-hmm. that was during the high rise of the SUVs, you know, the, the big Hummers coming out has 
being things that were driven by everybody for no real reason was on the horizon. So like seeing that was hilarious to me. And the reason it's here, you know, it's, it's not so much further. You know, it's still in my number 91 is the fact that I think it does a lot for a plot that isn't trying to do a lot. Like doesn't need no. to do a lot. Um, the plot is kind of just it's jammed into silly. this movie. Yeah, it's very, it's very silly. Um, but why wouldn't it be? I mean, what else do you, what, what else, else do you, you want to be? A do? robot fighting at basically supervillains, like people who have no reason to be this powerful in, in their villainy and, and this uncontained in what they're doing. Well, I mean, I think it's one of the interesting parts of this movie is that for a little bit, the plot from a you know a villain standpoint. Um, not even from a villain standpoint, the backstory or the kind of subplot makes a lot of sense um, in regards to the universe that they've created. You know, the idea that they want to clean up this area of old Detroit so they could build a new corporate, you know, superstructure housing development called, like, what, New Delta? Yeah, or whatever Delta it is. City. Delta City. Um, the idea that they would try to if they have the technology to try to upgrade the police force to the point where it'd be indestructible and they could just wipe out crime in this area. Um, and the idea that there be, might be a competition as to how best to wipe out crime, the moral ramifications of wiping out crime with a, a thing that just shoots people indiscriminately. Um, that will, that also has a military contract versus, um, you know what RoboCop ends up being, which is a kind of more humane super cop that can't be killed. I mean that's an interesting plot, and then the plot kind of—I wouldn't say it comes off the rails. It just kind of keeps hammering that home. It's like, no, I just want mine to be it because of I like it. Yeah, I like, mean that's that's a whole plot for a long time. People die. Because he just wants to get his robot on the street more than he wants the other guy's robot on the street. Like, That's a it. more a more grounded <laughs> film would definitely have Dick Jones just kind of killing Bob Morton like he does, like using Boddicker to kill Bob Morton, and then, you know, taking over the RoboCop program because it's working. Yeah, he calls it like an abomination. Like, he's some, some kind of, you know, there's a moral ambiguity to the RoboCop. <laughs> But I think the RoboCop program. I think that plays a lot into. Nah, this might be me over overreaching, but fuck it. Um, a lot into the, the era in which the film was being made, in this kind of like headstrongness of, of kind of like conservative politics. In the sense oh of, yeah, especially in the older conservatives of I want my way, even though it doesn't make any sense. Right. You know, like the the Star Wars defense program and all that. There's a loose in that the idea that there's a loose morality to justify what they want. Yeah, and like you have Bob Morton, you know Miguel Ferrer being that younger kind of upstart who's who's willing to kind of bend or, or change things in order to, you know, he still represents corporate greed, but he's like that nouveau corporate greed in the sense of they do he will take women's yeah. chess. Yeah, exactly. He'll <laughs> but looser, you know, much more willing to kind of like work with people. Be like he's yeah, he's yeah, yeah. working with other people around him uh whereas dick jones is just this locked down headstrong i'm gonna do things absolutely my way even though it's proven that doesn't to work. be garbage right um and that's that's what's interesting about it is is the fact that like this works on so many levels it works has such a really stupid action movie but a really engaging action it movie. works on as, as a stupid action movie but it also works as a commentary on 
like 80s culture in general. Like 80s which is, corporate, corporate which, I mean, so greed. So when I was and... watching it, my first instinct is like, wow, 2028 is like the most 80s time in the history of the universe. Oh, yeah. Um, Although then, it does foretell DVDs. It, yeah, it does. And it also foretells robots that can fall down the stairs and panic like, like turtles. Well, no, that's one thing I love, too. I love how the Ed is always presented as like an infant. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. when it gets it falls down it initially, squeals. it just squeals like, and that's like it sounds like they did an ADR thing with a baby scream. It's it's unpleasant, spy. yeah. Um, and it's it's long, and like you see Robocop just kind of sitting there, like even just like why yeah. why is it reacting like that? And then later on, when he destroys the other one with that like really badass late eighties two thousand twenty eight version of a gun, uh-huh. um, the way it just kind of like bumbles around before falling down is, yeah, yeah. is ridiculous and it's goofy and but it's. Like, that's what I love about this is it leans into its goofiness. So it gives something sure. to anybody who can see it. Yeah. I mean, uh, the thing, one of the, it leans into its goofiness, but he hits, I think Verhoeven is generally good at his job. So he actually does a lot of fairly good directing here. I mean, there's the shot, that scene when after he confronts Emil at the gas station and he kind of has some recognition of the memories that they accidentally left inside his head. Yeah, because Emil recognizes him sure. from just from his, the thing that he, from said. he says. Yeah, um, and then so he, you know, he blows up the gas station, and then he Emil tries to get away on his motorcycle, and he you know shoots at his motorcycle, and Emil crashes, and then you just see RoboCop walking towards him while the gas station exploding over his shoulder. There's like a very still camera um, shot of like half of RoboCop's face while he's walking, and it seems very. It's almost like a live-action comic book. And it would and become a, a comic book. Right, and it's, but it's a very effective cinematic scene. It looks great. It does its job well. It adheres to the nature of the story that he's telling, um, which I think is important in the sense that kind of what we were talking about is that he's, while he takes, he's obviously taking this subject matter very seriously, he understands what it is. And he's not trying to turn this into, you know, you know, we just talked about Citizen Kane. He's not trying to turn this into Citizen Kane. He's turning in a different direction with it, which is a very, uh, a very high concept, almost cartoon esque. You know, especially with all like the nature of the violence in it, almost cartoon esque action movie. No, and exactly, and but it's at the same time he he has the respect for the story and the respect for for the world he's creating to at least try to be making points, which I thought's interesting. Um. To be making some sort of statements, but still wallowing and heavily grounded into, like you said, the comic book. Also, for me, a big part of the reason I loved it is like it's very much like a, a one of the first things I films I saw that was heavily leaned into being almost a video game. Mm. Like like the way the action scenes are done, or and like the targeting, and the thing. targeting yeah. is is very much like a late eighties, early nineties sort of arcade shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, and like as I said, that that's that's the reason it just shows up here is the fact that it it offers so much, um, you know, and and for me it's it's kind of spanned the I've matured with it, yeah, not in the sense not in the sense that this is a mature film. I mean, probably shouldn't be seeing it when you're seven, um, <laughs> but the fact that I keep coming back to it and seeing something else. Last week I talked about you know Scream and Scream's always been kind of the same thing mm-hmm. for me. I, I saw, when I saw it when I was younger, it was the, this thing, you know, and it's kind of stayed that. Mm-hmm. RoboCop is something I keep coming back to, and and as I, you know, 
either mature as a person or has I mature in what I see in film. It's something I get something new from. Yeah. I mean, I think not to compare Robocop to Citizen Kane, but I think you can look at it from. This... Oh, I think that's very fair. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of some of the same. It, we're talking about it in roughly in kind of the same way is that every time you watch it, you know, there's something, something else there. Something else jumps out at you. Like something else makes a little more sense. Something else makes less sense. Something else is more relevant. Um, to the life that you're living now. And I think that's one of the great things um, about our list, but also like movies in general, especially like movies that you've already seen before, is that, you know, you're not seeing them with the same pair of eyes that you saw it, like the first time you saw it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, and like, how does that work? What's the new thing? What's the what's the the new kind of lens that you're looking at this movie through? I mean, this movie is interesting because it is... 2018 and everything sucks and that's yeah, kind of like we've had a totally turnaround back, back into the world like of, of that kind of weird overly masculine corporatism is kind of like making a, a return after 15 years of kind of being in the background so it's yeah it's interesting it's especially i think this last time i watched it just last night and it's the first time i've watched it in a few years actually the first time Two things that popped out to me were and just just the necessity so much of the violence if it if it needs to be there, mm-hmm. which is maybe a quick conversation to have. But the other thing that popped out to me is just how much I fucking love Kirkwood Smith in this. And just to talk about that really quickly. This yeah. Kirk I just I think that's one of the better villain performances that's really kind of Do you think so? Better villain better action eighties villain performances. Okay. I guess he's good. I just, I like, just... that bitches leave. Yeah. <laughs> How you doing? Uh, uh, uh. Bitches leave. Uh. Gee, Bobby. Bye. You gonna call me? Oh, my God. Uh. So, just, but he leans into, like, the, the campiness, too, that I think, in a way, Verhoeven did. I don't think um, Ronnie Cox does as well, mm-hmm. or that, uh, you know... Miguel Ferrer did as well. Like he's not Miguel Ferrer is not so much of a villain in this. He's more of antagonistic a than he is like a. a he's not a trying to. He doesn't villain. want to kill. Anyone. Right. He doesn't want to kill. He's, he's definitely a minor antagonist. Although he does not want to. He doesn't care about Murphy as a person. He doesn't think Murphy's he's, a person. Right. Anymore. He's just you know he he's willing to exp- you know look at this guy as a dead body for the sake of of the ongoing success of this program. Yeah. Um, um, no, I just, I mean, again, this is not my, this is not my genre. Um, Kurtwood Smith just seems silly to me. All of the villains, who is a who's who of, hey, it's that guy. Uh, you know, with Ray Wise and... Wait, Ray Wise isn't just that guy. Ray Wise is a that guy. Ray Wise is Ray Wise. And uh, Paul McCrane and, I mean, even Miguel Ferrer and, and you know, Ronnie Cox. If you, if you don't, if you're not super familiar with him, you're just like, I know that guy. I've seen that guy in a million things. No. Um, yeah, he's he's fine. He's playing against my perceived type of. Oh what yeah, Kermit a lot of people Smith would be doing. A lot of people see us now and see Red Foreman like, why, why is Red Foreman doing so many drugs? Why is he trying to sexually assault that secretary in a weird non-sexual <laughs> way, but just like yeah. in a power way? But I think that's a difference. Like you don't really adore the 80s actions as i do no i don't like commando fuck that movie i hate that movie a lot who's commando 
The Schwarzenegger? Yeah, Schwarzenegger, the, the first, like, Oh, yeah, 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 okay. It was, like, Commando, then Predator, then Die Hard. No, um, I, but I think... I, I was not a Predator. In guy. terms of all the villain performances, I would say, like, Kirkwood Smith's Clarence is probably third in the list of villain performances in the 80s. Do you want to reveal who your first two are, or is that something we're going to have to wait and see? They'll be revealed in time. Yes, it's a cliffhanger. Yeah. And actually, I think in order, too, which oh, will be nice. okay. That's how you determined which order they went in? Yeah. And I think people probably already know one. They probably all, all can guess the other one, too. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the second thing that struck me watching this now, and maybe this is kind of like just that return to the machismoism, is machismoism. Maybe that possi- if if that have, is not a word, that is now a word. Let's call Scott Hall and figure out how to say it. The, the wrestler he's, Scott Hall? He's got to know. The wrestler? Yeah. He's the reason. The Razor Ramon? Yeah. He's the reason anyone's saying machismo. <laughs> I typically, like, you know, obviously, as we talked about Green Room and all that, I am fine with yeah. violence. I don't know if it works in this anymore. In, um, in view. I mean, I think, here's the thing. I think probably in 1987, it was very shocking to see someone's hand explode. Oh, no. It's still, but I still think it's, it's very shocking. Do you? I found it hilarious. Really? Interesting. Yeah. But I think it's kind of... Oh, like... This movie was originally rated X. They had to cut out oh, was like it? four seconds of footage. Um, I mean, I just think it's it's so silly. How it... <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking of, of the first time Ed shoots, like I said, Ed shoots Kenny, and he's just shooting him for like oh, 30 yeah. seconds, and his body is bouncing off the model, and it's just like, it won't stop shooting him, and everyone's just like, turn it off, turn it well, off. Well, there was... The, the interesting story about that is um, the actor actually got injured because of that. Oh, there's really? 200 squibs oh my God. placed in him. Um, and Paul Ver- it wasn't violent enough for Paul Verhoeven, so Paul Verhoeven sure. placed bags of spaghetti squash with more squibs. Uh-huh. So, like, spaghetti squash was exploding out of him to, like, represent his intestines. Great. And that's actually what they had to cut out. They had to cut out two seconds of that when it was, like, sitting there kind of, like, yeah. just this, like, splatter of corn syrup dyed spaghetti squash coming out of them. I mean, I just think of the whole Murphy execution scene is just, I mean, it's hard to take it seriously when the guys that are doing it are having so much, like, weird, comedic, 80s movie villain fun. Which, and I think, I think that's, I think that's kind of down. like a, a misgiving of the film is, like, obviously, it's trying to show, like, the horror of that violence and the horror of... of what they're doing and the fact they're taking such glee in his pain and torture. Um, you know, Clarence obviously saying like, you know, fun's over and then shooting him in the head. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I don't, I don't know something about it I mean, there's even, for I, something, for a movie that that's, that's trying to make a lot of arguments kind of somewhat against the violence or like how, like the normalization of violence it really revels in it. I don't know how much that works. Well, I think if you're kind of looking at it from uh, like a cultural philosophy standpoint, he may be trying to use the ultraviolence as a kind of commentary, kind of in the same way that Scream did. Mm-hmm. You know, use the ultraviolence as a commentary against like the nature of the, of, the viewer. Of, of Yeah, like holding a mirror like, oh, you like this. I'm doing this because you like it. And if you like... Those things you like, maybe you'll like, you know, seeing a guy get toxic waste dumped on him and, and melt and turn all weird and stuff and then get hit by a car and explode into a massive 
weird maroon colored liquid all over a window. Which is goofy. I think that part's just goofy. That's really goofy, but it kind of that felt like a, a trauma sequence. I was like, yeah. felt like I was watching Toxic Avenger. I know, or like classic um, Newcomb High. But all that stuff, both movies that show up at number one and number two on the <laughs> list. <laughs> but they're all related, you know what I mean? Like all oh, those... shit. If I was actually being honest with myself, classic Newcomb High really should show up on my list. It doesn't. Well, we'll have to do another, you know, pod a separate podcast of of more movies that didn't show up on our list that we really wish we could have put on. Our yeah. List. Um, but to get. Back to the question at hand. Mario has like this really distant, long look on his face, <laughs> like he's dreaming of what his list would look like with class of Duke and with Lloyd Kaufman being allowed back in. Um, they're all they're all a part of the same. They're all part of the same thing. I mean, the violence is the same throughout. I mean, the only time the violence isn't totally extreme and seems normal from a movie standpoint is when RoboCop is throwing. Um, Boddicker through multiple windows in that in that factory, mm-hmm. and his face is getting all cut up. But I think in every other instance, if he wasn't a main character, he would have expl- <laughs> he would have exploded. Yeah, or it would have been like a you know a ghost scene where like a pane pane of glass breaks and it falls through a guy's neck, and he you know turns into a ghost and floats away with those demon ghosts. Are we talking about no- we're going back to Zucker? Yeah. yeah. Um. Um, so it's all, it's so cartoony though. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. And I don't know if it's trying to lean into its cartooniness. I don't know if he's trying to make a point. I just don't. You can look at like where the, you know, we're talking about ultra violence. You can look at the, something like the clockwork orange where there's, you know, it's perceived to be this very violent movie, but in reality, it's not violent at all. There's almost no real violence in the clockwork orange. It's the perception of the nature of the things that they're doing to those people. Yeah. And we as a culture have, have seemed to say collectively i want i want more i want i want to see that stuff like those are the that's the stuff i want to see um i just don't know it just does it upset you are you more upset by are you as upset with the violence in robocop as you are with the violence in goodfellas i think and how does screams violence not relate to those two things yeah, see, that's the thing I don't know, but there's something about RoboCop's violence that got to me that Scream really does. Scream, I mean, Scream has, like, moments of, of brutality, mm-hmm. but it kind of punctuated by long stretches where there's nothing of the sort sort of happening, or some of the deaths in Scream are pretty bloodless. Mm-hmm. Um, like, everything in RoboCop is kind of, like, intense, but over the top at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know, maybe maybe it's something as I'm getting older now where like that kind of like languishing on violence is, is bothering me. Mm-hmm. Um, I still like Green Room because Green Room's violence is, is very quick and, and, and kind of like off camera. And as you, quickly yeah, you as barely it is on yeah, camera. Exactly. Um, and maybe just this like lingering on violence now, I'm starting to like wonder what the point is. Right. And I think but that's interesting. We're coming at these from two different perspectives because I I tend not. You to like have... seeing you like seeing Peter Weller have his hand blown off. Yeah, I did actually. That was really funny because Peter Weller's face after he got his hand blown off was like, like the greatest face. The whole... <laughs> that initial like, why is it this just, happening? Yeah, it just like disappeared. He's like, what happened to my hand? <laughs> oh yeah, blood is just pouring out of my hand. But like you know, so I tend not to respond to violent movies, and we've had this conversation I feel like a million times about something like The Green Inferno, which. You know, everyone's like, oh, it's so violent. And so 
that's. I mean, what are can- cannibals are gonna eat you? Like, well, I, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's same thing with green room. Like, my enjoyment of the mood of green room, or my discomfort with the mood of green room, not from a, a quality standpoint, but just from like a, a, a horror movie doing its job, um, came not from him getting his hand half hacked off. It was just the natural tension that comes from like how do they get out of this mm-hmm. like what's behind the door not so much that what's behind the door is a guy with a machete that's going to try to cut your hand off it's just like the idea that like i don't know what's behind the door so every time they would show us what's behind the door i would feel less dread about what's actually going on and i don't know if that yeah i don't think dread is the intention of robocop it's just... no, no 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 but it's just like when you're thinking of from a when you're thinking of the violence the violence is so ex- so extreme I suppose it's either fair to be repulsed by the the casual nature that they're just kind of tossing off this such extreme violence, or you can laugh at it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's just so over the top. And the reactions to it are so over the top. I guess it just it, it exists in this weird space. And, like, once again, as a, as a fan of, like, the 80s action movies, you know, like, in that same year you have Predator, which is still pretty violent, but a little more reserved i would say um in terms of but there's also a supernatural element to predator yeah too. but then like next year you get die hard which is pretty violent in itself but also once again more reserved but i mean then that puts that's us, supposed to be more grounded but then we're moving into 90s era action movies where like hundreds of people die in every single movie but you don't see any of them yeah so that it's okay to show people getting gunned down like streaming out of planes as long as you don't show their chest such as in the exploding. classic film Passenger 57. Passenger 57. That's the exact movie I was thinking of. Good. Yeah. We have to keep bringing it back to Passenger 57. Right. But I think, but, but just once again, like, kind of bring it all home is, it's it's a movie that every time I watch it, I'm getting something new out of it. Yeah. And and that's, I think, an important part of, of the movies that kind of show up, especially early on on my list. Mm-hmm. I, I think as I move further into the list, I have a more grounded reason, a reason that stayed consistent. And that has that built upon. I agree with you. With my yeah. of other I think films. we're going. We're going to go. We're moving into the same direction with our list. Yeah. Um, but this is just something you know, not to, not to make it so synonymous with what you said with Citizen Kane, but no, we're doing it. We're comparing them. We're know, writing essays. Yeah, for a completely different reason, I get something out of RoboCop new each time. Maybe not so much an appreciation, but I see something new. Sure. And now, not you know, like I said, not not an appreciation, not something that I'm like, oh, look at what it's doing, but I'm like. I think about something new in it. And, uh... Good. All right, so let's run down some of the list of things we've got going on. We've got our Instagram. It's Instagram.com slash PivotalFilm. Okay, we've got our, um... Twitter. Twitter. Twitter.com slash FilmPivotal. Pivotal. Um, we, we have, have our, our Gmail. Web, our Gmail, PivotalFilmPodcast at gmail.com. If you want to say anything to us, hate mail, love mail do they call it love mail i don't want that i don't want love mail you guys are doing great it's gonna make me really that'd be really disconcerting yeah i forgot i suppose i forgot like the same person everything you're saying is good no that'd be bummer yeah don't do don't send us that my list is exactly like your list that's weird (laughs) that's like wait a minute mario why are you sending this email (laughs) um you can visit pivotalfilm.com and there's links to all this stuff there's also links to subscribe to us at various podcast uh, subscription sites like iTunes and Stitcher and I haven't figured out how to add anything else yet so just those two things there's also uh, a list of the films on our lists and the beers we've dranketh 
to quickly reiterate the beer from today, the Bad Sons Con Ale. You could you should skip. We're giving it a hard C. And then see you later. We're not going to drink yeah. this ever again. Um, um, all right. Well, that's it for us. Um, episode 91. Uh, thank Down you for the listening. Grain, 10% in. Next time you hear us, we're going to be in 11%. I know. It's scary. There's no turning back now, Mario. Right, we're going to go to a lot of movies over the next couple of weeks. Um, hopefully, you can also go see a movie, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week. Good. Yeah.